On this episode of the podcast, I have with me Yash Desai. He is the head of B2B machine learning at Wayfair. We're going to be talking about building machine learning teams. Uh, so Yash has a great background, uh, deep in machine learning. He comes from consulting. And we're going to talk about you know some of how that experience has helped him at Wayfair. We're going to be talking about how um, you simply just have more time uh, and how you manage your roadmap and um, fostering team culture and um, managing a team that stretches across multiple business units. Uh, Yash, super excited to have you here. Thanks, Samir. I'm so excited to be here. Awesome, man. So let's start off uh, with with two things. One, I'm pretty sure what you know most people know what Wayfair does, but tell us what Wayfair you know does as a business, and then also what are some of your responsibilities of uh, head of B two B machine learning there? Yeah, absolutely. So Wayfair is one of the largest e commerce companies in the US in the field of uh, home goods and furniture, um, and very recently, I want to say like last five years ago. Um, it started off its B2B arm, so not just serving consumers, but also businesses. And that's where I come in. Like they, I was brought in to kind of lead the machine learning organization for this B2B arm of Wayfair. And so my team kind of covers all aspects of machine learning, all the way from marketing, sales, service, and pricing. So yeah, happy to dive more into it. Awesome. Awesome. So I guess, you know, we're talking about building teams. Um, so maybe at a high level, let's talk about you, know, you mentioned your team spans multiple business units, and obviously that in of itself has some unique constraints. But maybe talk about you know how that team is set up and kind of you know how how wide your responsibilities are, and we'll kind of dive in from there. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe I'll give a bit of context of you know how I kind of fell into this and why I took it up. Sure. I kind of attributed more as like um, maybe a hangover from my consulting days, where um, I would naturally gravitate a lot towards breadth of topic instead of depth of topic. And this particular role kind of excited me Mm -hmm. because it was almost like leading a a mini startup within Wayfair, right? So that's how I got into it. And, you know, as I mentioned, my team does machine learning all the way from, you know, marketing, like top of funnel to like very downstream, like how do we, uh, you know, increase profits from our existing customers. So in terms of challenges, I, I think of like four or five main challenges that I currently face. The first one being domain knowledge. And maybe a related one is having the bandwidth to dive deeper into them. The next one is there are a lot of unique infrastructure or organizational challenges across these business units. So how do you kind of tackle them? Third one, which is personal to me uh, as as a leader uh, in, in this space of context switching, right? So I have this one conversation in the morning where I'm talking to a marketing leader about okay, how do we start up an email campaign? And then in 30 minutes, I'm talking to a pricing leader about discount recommendations. Two totally disjoint topics. Um, and then finally, um, how do you build relationships, right? Because you don't want to just, you know, have this tactical and, uh, you know, more of a transactional relation, but having a more strategic thought partnership. So the way I've kind of addressed uh, some of these issues, um, number one is organizing a team into sub-teams or pods. Right? To take an example, if I have, let's say, 10 data scientists or engineers on my team and I'm addressing both marketing and sales, I would just split them into five focusing just on marketing and five focusing just on sales. So there's focus. And then it also helps uh, the engineers get aligned to what their interests are uh, and learn about the business even more. The second thing um, that we often do as technical leaders is we were always taught that, hey, don't expect your business partners to know anything about machine learning or even stats 101. But the reverse is not true. Your business leaders will often expect you to know about the business. 
So be upfront. Just tell them that, hey, I don't know anything about sales. You need to teach me. Right. So don't don't be afraid of, you know, just raising your hand and asking for help and asking clarifying questions. So that's what I typically do, especially in this situation when, you know, I'm spread so thin. I just go in and tell my business partners that, hey, I, I would love to learn about, you know, how do you learn, how do you do your marketing campaigns? And that kind of, you know, sets the right expectation, sets the right tone from the very beginning. And then finally, the, uh, the, the practical thing that I do for context switching is I block time before meetings. So I know that, okay, this is an important meeting coming up. So I don't want to just go in without, uh, without having a clear agenda and a, and a clear mind. So even if it's like 10 minutes, it just helps me kind of, you know, get into the mold, get into the groove before I go into the meeting. And then the last one that I talked about was relationships, right? Um, what happens is if you're addressing or you are working with different business units, um, you mostly focus on the tactical and more pragmatic issues, but you never really build those deeper relationships, right? So you have to be super deliberate, you know, set up those one-on-ones, go for coffee chat, you know, go for golf over the weekend, whatever it, it may, uh, you know, it may take you to do to build that relationship because otherwise, you know, you'll end up building that patchwork of solutions and never get into the, the scalable or repeatable work that would, you know, eventually build a great organization. I, I guess, you know, maybe to dive into to some of that, because I think there's a lot of, you know, stuff there to unpack. I, I guess when you're looking at these different units, and I understand context switching has to be you know, a challenge and, you know, going into a new area, asking for help. When you're looking to set up the, I guess, your 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 department's roadmap, I guess, how do you go about that, right? So obviously there's a lot of moving parts, lots of different teams balancing that. Like, how does the planning happen for your your roadmap on your team? Yeah, and that's the, the million dollar question, right? Like, um, <laughs> what, what I say to this, and again, it's going to sound like a very cliched diplomatic answer, but I'll say it anyway, is, I try to ma- like marry both top-down mandates and like bottom-up crowdsourcing. And I deliberately use the words mandates and crowdsourcing because top-down comes from senior executives and leadership. And you know they'll just tell you, hey, we need to grow the business. We need to bring more profit. Go figure out how you'll use machine learning for it. And then that just sets the agenda, sets the tone. But then bottom-up, you have your team, which is you know really in the weeds. They know how things work. And they'll come to you and say, hey, Yash, I'm spending so much time doing the same thing over and over again to clean the data. Why don't we do something to, you know, to have a pipeline or have a repeatable process? So you do want to listen to them, right? Because you know that their time is valuable. So that's how I kind of try to combine the roadmaps in a way that you know it both addresses the business objectives as well as addresses concerns from within the team. And then obviously you go through your standard process of what's the value at stake? You know, are these projects bringing in the, the the return on investment that you expect. What is the urgency and feasibility, right? Because there might be some very high value at stake projects, but then there's no urgency or, you know, they're not feasible because let's say um, GDPR issues in Europe, like, you know, it's a big, big thing. It's going to bring a lot of profit, but you're just stuck because of legal reasons. So then you don't want to put it on your roadmap. And then finally work with your, your business partners to make sure that you're fully aligned, that they have the capacity to take your model and and put it in use. Otherwise, you might end up with you know uh, 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 an army of models which are great and fancy and shiny, but then no one's using them. So you know it's it's of no use to anyone. And I could completely understand the predicament. I mean, you have different. <laughs> you're pretty broad uh, being asked to go into new business areas. So to maybe follow up to that question, 
when there's conflicting, you know, requirements, you know, you have different stakeholders, somebody's got to be disappointed, right? Not everyone can be met. Somebody has to be prioritized. When you're going about that process, um, how does that look? Because obviously that's a trade-off. Like your team has a certain amount of bandwidth unless they want to, you know, add to your budget <laughs> or whatnot. But but what does that look like when you have competing stakeholders who seemingly have priority, you know, everyone has priority needs, but seemingly, you know, top tier priority needs? I think that's the 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 most difficult part of this job, I would say. Like um when what we call brutal prioritization, like you have to do it and you have to have those difficult conversations. And I think this is where my my point from, you know, your previous question comes into picture is, you know, do you have that relationship where your partner is going to understand why you're not prioritizing their projects, right? So I, I do it in two or three different ways. The first one, which is, you know, just my DNA is data. I use, I use data to influence people, right? I, I tell them that, hey, you know, these are all the five projects. My team can only do three of them. And I've just rank ordered them based on the return on investment. And unfortunately, yours fall, you, you know, your project falls below the threshold. So I'll, I'll do it, but maybe not this half, the next half, right? So just data, you know, pe- no one can refute data, right? It, it is what it is. The second one is just influencing um, based on, you know, for the lack of better word, authority. Like, you know, you, you just use other senior leaders' help, kind of bring them onto your camp and say that, hey, you know, why don't you champion the cause for me and go to this particular other business leader and tell them that, hey, for now, this is the most important project that we can do. And you know, of course, your project is important too, but we'll have to wait until we finish this other high-priority project, right? So just maybe bringing in a, another senior leader. And then the flip side of it, which is working with someone from within the team, uh, like a, a junior person, and, and ha- having them champion for you, right? So it's the same thing, but one is more top-down and the other one is more bottom-up where the junior person goes and explains their boss that, hey, you know, I spoke to Yash, what he says makes sense. And, you know, they're more likely to listen to someone to their team from their team versus, you know, uh, 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 someone from a, a machine learning team. Yeah, that that's obviously, uh, you know, that, it seems like a very practical way. You know, obviously, you know, people will understand, you know, once they go through cycle with you of if you're planning that this is what to expect and you know if you fall below that threshold hey it's 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 kicked to the next quarter or next next cycle yeah one more thing i'll add is um what i've often done in such situations is provide an alternative solution which is not necessarily machine learning so sometimes um and you know i i use this as a joke you don't need a space shuttle to commute to work right you can you can you can might as well take a bike by by what that by by that what i mean is you don't always need a very fancy machine learning solution to all the problems. You can use simple heuristic solutions, right? Our good old if-else conditions. If a customer has a credit score about 800, give them the loan. Something as simple as that. And you you just go in with, with a solution and oftentimes it, it, it works. So it's not always saying no, but just saying no with an alternative solution. That makes sense. I actually think that's a really uh, fair way of looking at, I think, you know, just from the side, it sounds like, you know, from what I hear from other, you know, leaders in machine learning is that everyone thinks that uh, put in an ML solution is the answer because they've heard it and they think that solves some problems they haven't figured out yet. And so, so I think sometimes edu- that education component of, you know, while you have a, while you have an issue may not require this complex of a solution, which will take us a, a long time. I, I guess I wanted to tie in 
you know, your background um, a little bit and, and kind of mention, you obviously I know you worked in the consulting space, you know, the timelines you're working on now, actually, before we go forward, what are the timelines? So when we're talking about this roadmap, is it a quarterly, is it, you know, semi-annual, yearly, how long are the roadmaps you're planning? So the roadmaps could go as long as 12 to 18 months and sometimes even longer. And it depends a lot on the industry, right? So to give you an example, in healthcare, um, things move a little slower. Um, so you might be looking at longer term horizons and, um, you know, especially if you're working at a more mature organization, things are well set in place. But if you're at a, at a smaller company, a startup, for example, then, you know, you, you have to be super nimble. You have to like be able to pivot quickly and then your roadmaps might be just six months or sometimes even three months, like quarterly basis. So yeah, it's, it, it, uh, it depends a lot on, uh, you know, the, the size and the mature, maturity of the company. Uh, and I've kind of done both, like both ends of the spectrum. Uh, but typically I try to have at least like 12 to 18 months of roadmap and then have intermediate milestones uh, so that, you know, we're not just going into a dark corner and, you know, coding away mm-hmm. and then just someone wakes us up after 12 months. And I guess as you're kind of looking at you know, the roadmaps, um, you know, maybe some of the the differences of consulting is, you know, as as you're as it brought in from an outside perspective, you know, you 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 have a certain budget, you have a certain, you know, amount of time and you have to deliver. You know, you mentioned, you know, healthcare, even what you're doing now, the timelines are, are longer. How how did you, I guess, have to alter your approach of, you know, Having having a more short term deadline focused deliverable versus hey, I'm here for the long term. I need to start planning for for years, not just you know the three months. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know we were joking about this earlier. Like you know, consulting is what we call consulting by hand grenade. So um, I think the first thing is a big mindset shift uh, going from consulting to industry is calm down. <laughs> like this time. And it's not the end of the world if, you know, if you had set a deadline of three months and then you, you take two additional weeks. So just having that mindset shift, uh, is, is really important. Uh, and, you know, it's just like do very different business models, right? In consulting, you know, you have a very well defined budget, um, and, uh, you know, set timeline. Anything that goes beyond is basically eating into your budget. So what we try to do is there's absolutely no margin for error. So everything has to be like super watertight. And what that means is your scope cannot increase. Like if, if you're increasing scope, that means you're already, you know, outside, outside your timeline or you just have to, you know, sacrifice or weekends. So, so, so yeah, just, just being, uh, you know, very uh, cognizant of the fact of keeping the scope super tight uh, and then going in with a plan B because things will always go south, especially when you're dealing with like, technology. You, you want to make sure that you build in that extra buffer, thinking about, what could be the alternate solution uh, and and kind of imbibing it into your timelines and your work plan so you don't kind of fall off the wagon. Whereas if you're in the industry and you have longer time frames, then I think you have more, more flexibility to kind of you know, play around. Um, you can move like certain parts of your work plan if you know you're getting stuck somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can let's say you know be more top heavy or be more bottom heavy. And also grab resources from other parts of your team, which you cannot do in consulting. Right here, if I know that there's a strict deadline and you know I can do parallel work, I'll just ask someone else to pause their project and then bring them onto this more high priority project. I guess when you're kind of looking at you know the shift and now you're you know transitioned to working for Wayfair and you're you're pretty 
you know, you're getting you know, ramped up in, in, in that when you're looking back at your consulting days and you're, and you're looking back at some of those conversations that you mentioned about stakeholder plan B, plan A, and you have to, you know, do similar, you mentioned you're using data to you know, prioritize stakeholders. How much of that, you know, consulting switch will turn on and, and be able to help, you know, between plan A, plan B and prioritizing. And, and obviously there, you know, you still have budgets, but how much of that light uh, just turns on and you, you're in that mode again? Oh yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it's like second nature to me now. Like uh, it, it turns off, uh, turns on and off like quite often. And I think it's, uh, it's all for the good, right? Because Oftentimes, and you know, I say this with utmost respect, you do have machine learning leaders who are like super technical, very sharp, but then uh, they're unable to kind of understand the business perspective. And having that consulting background has really given me that edge and almost like a unique vantage point to be on the other side of the table and understand that, okay, you know, uh, I want to come up with a solution which works for the both of us. And if that means that my accuracy is Less by 5%, that's fine. It's not the end of the world. But what's more important is for me to meet the deadline. right? So whereas if you're a purist, if you're coming from a super technical background, you often like look so much of precision and accuracy that you don't always think of oh, a good solution is sometimes better than a great solution. So I think that's something like, you know, what we call in consulting, like 80-20 principle, like, you know, 80% um, solution is good enough often. I want to actually go back to your your team at Wayfair, but I had a you know, question because it, it comes up uh, when you're when you're finding candidates that come from a consulting background. Sometimes companies look at that and they they don't like it. They want you to be more you know having that work experience in a product or a company have that quote unquote the, the skin in the game. You know, being there long term. But sometimes, like I mean, just like you, you have all this different visibility in different projects, models, different ways of operating, different ways of executing, which has so much value. Like that, I don't I don't like the word stigma, but there is a stigma of, you know, having work for consulting and going into, you know, an organization. Like is it, I don't think that's changing anytime soon, but I just want to put that to you because it's kind of sometimes I find it frustrating. I'm sure, you know, candidates who are coming from that background, you know, find it frustrating. <laughs> that's absolutely true and I've faced it directly and indirectly. Um, and, you know, in, in, in sometimes in a good way that people would say, oh, if someone comes from consulting, they have this certain kind of polish to their communication and, you know, that understanding of, of business, which is sometimes lacking in a truly technical uh, person. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they will say this, that, hey, you know, all you did was just recommend. You never really saw the light at the end of the tunnel. So how do you know if what you recommended actually panned out? So it's a fair, it's a fair point, right? And uh, to be honest, uh, in the early parts of my career, that that's basically what we did. Like, you know, we built models, but the the deployment or the production part of it was left to the clients. That that has changed. That has changed dramatically. And now like there are, I want to say almost like six months transformations where you know, that the, the tech teams from consulting, they actually sit with the clients and then, you know, put things into production. So as this new batch and new generation of consultants who are both uh, more technical and they've also sat through all of the entire, the entire life cycle, uh, they, they're going to industry. I think that's going to change. Uh, but I think like as of now, it's like oldies like me who are, you know, more on the, on the wrong side of, of consulting, I would say. Yeah, I mean that's. I think you bring up a a very interesting observation. Is I think 
you know, I think maybe there is that shift happening. I've been, I've been seeing the the candidate who is now dealing with more production. And it's true. If you work, you know, if you go to a strategic, you know, consulting company, their job is to provide strategy. They're not going to put anything in production. But if you're, you know, looking at, at somebody who's been on teams delivering, I think it's, it's maybe again, it's, I think the, the bias is to kind of just look at consulting and go, Oh, consulting, Maybe the shift is is something that hopefully we'll see. I mean, obviously, you know, you're you're doing amazing at Wayfair. You're 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 running a large you know B two B team and machine learning, and 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 you're using those skills to your to your advantage. And you've been able to make the shift of, you know, thinking short term to long term. So hopefully, we start seeing a bigger shift. Yeah, absolutely, and and I'm excited. Like I I do have uh, a lot of my friends who started off with me were still in consulting, and I'm seeing that shift already, where now they're going towards more. Not just recommending, but actual implementation. So, yeah, hoping to see the shift soon. Absolutely. I was going to go back to your team because I didn't. Um, you know, before we got into the consulting discussion, I was going to ask you the you know the interesting part about your team. You know, one of the many interesting parts is you know as broad as it is, how do you balance you know different you know people working different projects, different you know alignments that that team. I don't want to use the word culture, but there's like cohesiveness since they are so wide. That's a great question. And I think the, the this challenge actually got multiplied or aggravated during COVID, right? Because teams were remote. Like before COVID, people would sit next to each other. And, you know, even if you're, let's say, going to a conference room and just waiting for the, the previous folks to, to vacate, you would do small talk. And in this small talk, you would talk about, okay, what project are you working on? But that, that, organic conversation that cohesiveness was lost during covid because we were all remote uh, so we had to make it deliberate right and and you know i i try to do a few things to to make it happen one is of course building that culture of um, you know having relationships not just specific to work but like non work too uh, which you know which you would often have at you know in the office because you would have happy hours or team activities so we try to do it a lot like uh, online for example the other thing I try to do is um, use what people like in my team and make it fun. So hackathon is a good example where often people code, but then they don't get to code with each other and especially not get to code with people from a completely different team. So we try to pair up people from across the team to have this you know, uh, cross-pollination, I would say, um, so that you know they get to work with each other and build that cohesiveness, uh, when, which they wouldn't be able to do organically in the day-to-day. Uh, and then finally, this is something people don't talk about as often, but um, and maybe it's it's maybe it's non non PC, but I'll just say it in tech, especially or in machine learning, you often have folks uh, who are international who uh, may not be native English speakers, so they don't often speak up a lot. Um, so you want to encourage them, right? I'm I'm personally myself not a native English speaker, so you know, and I was given that uh, that mentorship from the beginning that hey, you know, it's okay, you don't have to be perfect in English. Uh, so I do that with my teams. Like I encourage them to speak up, and when they do speak up, I recognize them, uh, and you know I encourage them to present in like smaller huddles where they're able to present and they're already confident about the topic. So I think making these these kind of you know small steps builds this cohesive team culture and you know creates that environment of of camaraderie within the team, and um, that's been like I've seen a lot of success, and it just multiplies the the productivity of the entire team. Absolutely, I love that. That's the, I think I think more and more we're hearing about people creating those safe spaces because you know we're, we're no longer you know necessarily next to each other, and I think people 
have to be given more of that opportunity. I think that's fantastic. And obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're seeing that and, and you're making the adjustments. So, so good for you and good for your team. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you, um, I like asking uh, guests about, uh, you know, what they'd like to hear about in a future topic or a future question they'd like another guest to answer. Um, so I was going to ask you, is there something that you'd like another guest to, to cover in terms of topic or you have a specific question you'd love to hear somebody have a response to? Yeah, I think one topic which is on my mind uh, and it's pretty philosophical, I would say two. One is, is less philosophical, which is, um, is machine learning going to be a victim of its own success? And by that, I mean, like, we're already automating everything. At some point, you'll have models that are going to regenerate themselves. So would we even have, would we even need people and engineers to kind of build these models? Right? So that's the, the first one. And the second one, which is super philosophical, and there's a lot out there, is are we ourselves in a simulation? And I've, I've put a lot of thought into this, then you can read up, uh, especially with, you know, the metaverse and all of this happening. I think it's something I'm super fascinated about. Um, so yeah, uh, that's, those are my two like, questions. Awesome. Yeah. I, I, I think both are, uh, very, very apt and, um, yeah, definitely. I think the first one's super interesting to hear, uh, about, you know, uh, for having, you know, future models written by, yeah, you know, existing machines. And I think that kind of ties into your second question in some way too. So uh, if somebody out there uh, understands the space and wants to come on and talk about it, I'd, I'd love to have that, uh, have you on the show. I guess if somebody wants to reach out to you, Yash, in terms of anything you've talked about in the podcast or anything, you know, just in general, they want to reach out because they heard, heard about you on the show. Uh, what's a good way of getting hold of you? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I'm quite active on social media. Um, okay. So you can reach me on LinkedIn. My name is Yash Desai. And if you just search for Yash Desai McKenzie or Yash Desai Wayfair, you're going to find me. I'm also active on Instagram. My handle is Desai, which is W-H-Y in my last name Desai. So you can find me on Instagram or just good old email, which, which is my first name, Yash J, my last name Desai. So that's Yash J Desai at gmail.com. Okay. We'll include some of those in the show notes. So if somebody does want to reach out to you, they can. Um, I want to thank you for your time. I appreciate you coming on and sharing. It's been it's been fantastic. Yeah, it's it's been so amazing, you know, like talking to you and having this conversation. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thanks, Josh. Um, that's it for this episode. We'll back again, different guests, different topic. Um, if you do know someone that can talk about um ML and uh, basically it's future and the need for writing future models or it'll be self uh, written um, or you you know someone that talks about uh, the uh, conversation around simulations and the metaverse you know hit me up I'd like to have you on the podcast and also please share the podcast if you find it useful I think uh, that's how we've been growing and I appreciate everyone does um, that's it for this episode thank you and goodbye. <laughs>